they look down on the undocumented. And when I was researching it, it was really upsetting to research it because it's not just the case that, you know, yes, they can leave and they can come back to Ireland, but often if we look at the stories why they left Ireland, there's often a tragic reason behind it. That was Elaine Nivrainon, advocate for the Irish language, interpreter of Irish America, and mother with a story to tell. And I'm Martin Nutty. And I'm John Lee. Welcome to the Global Irish Nation Conversation here on Irish Stew. This episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by the Irish Heritage Tree Program. Celebrate your Irish roots by planting native trees for family and friends in the beautiful Golden Vale of Ireland. Go to irishheritagetree.com and use the exclusive discount code today. It's irishstew10 for 10% off. That code again is irishstew and the numeral 10. Keep the heritage of Ireland green and growing by going to irishheritagetree.com. Hey, welcome back to another episode in our conversation for the Global Irish Nation here on Irish Stew. And today we're going to talk to someone who really is uh, an expert in the different forms of Irishness. And in conversation, she just identified herself as considering herself to be an Irish New Yorker. Where are we going next, Martin? Diogwit, Sean O'Leary, Roll, on podcast. And for those of you that are listening in that don't uh, necessarily understand Irish, Irish is actually not English with an Irish accent. It is not uh, Anglo or Hiberno English. It is probably one of the oldest spoken languages in Europe, stretching back somewhere in the range of two and a half thousand years. That whole preamble is because our guest, Elaine Nivrainon, Dr. Elaine Nivrainon is an expert in the Irish language, but she wears multiple hats. Uh, not only is she an expert in the Irish language, she also volunteers on the Irish Neonatal Health Alliance. So we're going to actually talk about two very divergent subjects. Indeed, Elaine lives in Ballymoney in Wexford. Uh, she's originally a Dubliner. But she's also spent an extended amount of time in New York City, where both John and I live. So not only does she wear two hats in her day-to-day activities, she also has experience in living extensively in two different places. And so with that, I would like to introduce Elaine Nivrenon. Welcome, Elaine. I'm delighted to be here. And the first thing I want to say is how much I miss Irish New York. I never just say New York, it's Irish New York. I really miss it. So it's so good. I mean, you know, it's so great to be able to connect over the internet. And I really do, you know, social media, for all its bad points, it also has some wonderful points to feel part of that little parochial community that is the Irish in the US. So, Elaine, we're delighted to have you on. And I just want to start, uh, I'm not that familiar with the part of Ireland you're in. So when you look out in the window this morning, uh, tell us a little bit about where you're living right now. So I'm living in a tiny little village called Ballymoney. It's about five miles outside Gorey, um, which is one of the main towns in County Wexford. We're about an hour and 15 minutes drive from Dublin Airport. But I, I feel many people in the US would have 
a more of a connection to the west coast of Ireland. So your Sligo, um, Mayo, Galway, rather than the sunny southeast. Because if we look back at immigration, the land is so it's so good down around here in the southeast that not not as many people would have left the southeast. So there isn't that connection. There is quite a connection between the southeast and England. And people would have gone to work there and still do. But I feel many people in the US mightn't have ever visited uh, the sunny southeast. So I definitely recommend a visit down here. But you have to call in for tea. And I mean that. I'm not one of these people who says we must meet for coffee and it never (laughs) happens. I expect you to come knocking at my door. You might regret that because I actually (laughs) I have a brother and sister down in Waterford, which is right next door to your county. So, you know, I may bang up on the door on you. I just want to throw in that I know this about Bally Money, that the Bally Money residents are campaigning for continued access to Beach Path at Seafield, which I see in the Wex, in the Irish Independent. And also in Agori, uh, you need to be on the lookout for a South, for an African gray parrot named Theo <laughs> who got loose. So uh, I, I alert all residents. By the time this show is aired, I hope Theo has been found. Absolutely. Yeah, I did see that this morning. That's in our local <laughs> newspaper, the Gory Guardian. Yes, exactly. I'm lucky enough, lucky enough to live in the grounds of Seafield Hotel. And there is um, a debate at, at the moment because public access um, has recently been denied to mm. the beach. Um, I think it was because of, you know, teenagers doing what they do and um, <laughs> yeah, things like that. So now okay. they have, I think, only residents will have access to the beaches and we do have some violence in those beautiful beaches but I'm biased my mum the reason actually um, I'm living down in Ballymoney is my mum is from Gory and um, so I would have spent every single summer down here summer Easter St Patrick's Day from the time I was born um, so I have a real connection to um, Wexford I always have and even when I was in um, in the US and we go to the United Irish Counties uh, dinner dance and I represented Wexford with John Murphy who mm. you all know, and I actually, yeah. I'll see John, I think, next month. Um, he's a, a great ambassador for all things Wexford. And also, <clears throat> excuse me, I have the privilege to work um, for Notre Dame University with the great Kevin Whelan, another very passionate um, Wexford man, Yellow Belly. He wouldn't mind me saying that. <laughs> um, so there's great. Anyone, yes, it's a great connection between the US and Wexford. So just for our listeners uh, who may not be uh, familiar with Yellow Belly, can you enlighten us? Yeah. So yellow belly is simply a, a term we use for people from Wexford. Mm-hmm. And fingers crossed the yellow bellies will win the All-Ireland this year because we desperately need it. We really do. Okay. So as you mentioned, your mom's from Gory, but uh, you grew up on the south side of Dublin. Am I correct? Yes, I grew up at the foot of the Dublin mountains. Uh, my dad is from Belmullet in Mayo and my mum is from Wexford. And they actually met here in Gory. My mum was home for the weekend. Um, she left Gory when she was about 17 to go to nursing college. And dad was studying to be a woodwork teacher in Gory. So she was home for the weekend. I think it was his last weekend here. There was a dinner dance on. Um, and actually, that reminds me of yeah, the whole dinner dance notion. I'll get to that later on, how it has gone from Ireland. The, dinner, the whole dinner dance scene has gone from Ireland. And it's something... I miss so much from Irish New York. It's almost like a time capsule. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll I'll mention that uh, later on. But yeah, so they met and then they uh, were married and lived in Dublin for 43 years. And then mum convinced them to retire back. Well, sorry, they built a holiday home down in Gory and then they kind of forgot to go home to Dublin. (laughs) So then they ended up selling the house in Dublin uh, because they love it down here so much. And now they're very lucky. They have 20 acres, lovely um, house. They built like a passive house. Um, 
beautiful like A rating, which is very important in Ireland because of the dampness. So they built a house. And my dad is 78 years of age and fantastic health. He is still a full-time sculptor. So he has his own purpose-built stu- built studio um, here just outside Bory. Oh. They live about 20 minutes from me. And they're fantastic. They're like other parents to my um, children. They're my three little boys. They're actually babysitting right now. They were called in <laughs> to make sure there'd be no bangs on the door while we record this. Also, you, you, your dad's from uh, Mayo, and as I understand it, he was the Gwailgar in, in your family. Is that correct? And you actually grew up in a bilingual house. So I always say that Irish or Irish Gaelic is my paternal language and English is my maternal language. So we spoke Irish like a lot at home, but when you become a cool teenager, the last thing you want to do mm. is be seen to be speaking Irish. It has this whole badge of, you know, back when I was growing up, it might have been like a bit geeky to speak Irish. So although I went to an Irish medium school, when you you just want to be the same as everyone else on the street, you know, you don't want to stand out. So dad would have spoken to me in Irish then and I would have answered him in English. And then when I got to come to 20, I didn't care. And, and but so because there was people always in and out of our house, a lot of, uh, you know, household stuff will be conducted in English. I'm not trying to say that it was, you know, we just spoke Irish to one another, but there was always an Irish background. You know, even last night, I, would you believe, I'm not just saying this, I dreamt in Irish. And that only happens maybe once or, or, or twice a month. But I always tell the story that when I was a teenager and if I wanted to stay out later or I wanted more pocket money, I always asked, I'll in Irish because I got the answer I wanted. Whereas if I <laughs> answered in English, I, I didn't uh, get what I wanted. And actually the great Niall O'Leary, when I was living in New York, used to say about me, and you guys might um, understand this. I'm not the best at replying to emails. And Niall said, the one way to get Elaine to reply to an email is to write it in Irish. <laughs> and I still am like that. I was with Niall last night on the Celtic cruise, which is probably something you've oh, been on. Fabulous. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I just, I miss the, the Irish, the Irish American calendar events. You know what's coming up when like, yeah, I have great memories of the Celtic cruise and Look, there is only one Nyland area, a great friend of mine. Yep. Just spinning back to the Irish thing, you, you mentioned the fact that, you know, you grew up in Dublin, um, but you also were educated through Irish, which is a little bit different because I, I think maybe, well, certainly all our Irish listeners will know that Irish is a required subject as part of the educational system in Ireland. But this is a little bit different. This is what they call a school, if I'm correct. Is that is that right? Yes. So I did all my education through the medium of the Irish language, beginning at kindergarten or play school, as you call it here, then right through elementary school, where we did everything through the Irish Gaelic language. Uh, we didn't start reading and writing English until I was seven, where as we started reading and writing Irish when I was five. And you ju- you played in Irish, you argued in Irish with your friends you got yelled at by your teachers in Irish it was just we never knew any different and then I went on to secondary school to high school as well and we did our 40 minute period of English every day but we learned French through Irish biology through Irish and again you didn't know any different and it was an amazing school Colossi Sagon um, in Dublin and the primary school was Skullnahi in Ballantyr and just to have that experience you know the Irish culture Irish music Irish dance everything I wasn't a good Irish dancer (laughs) that's one thing but just to have a total immersion and have a love for the Irish language and 
I'm a, I'm a good talker. It's one thing I'm good at. So I always had a flair for the Irish language. And that's why I decided to go across the road to UCD in Dublin, University College Dublin. And I did pure Irish. So Irish history, Irish folklore, Irish language um, for my degree. And then went straight into a master's program as well um, in the Irish language and wrote my first thesis on um, the Irish. What was it? Oh, no, it was a, a prophet, Brian Rua O'Carabin, a, a Red Brian O'Carabin, a prophet um, from Mayo. And then I felt like I needed to get out of the, co- the cocoon that is South mm. County Dublin. I had gone to school, I mean elementary school, to college with the same kind of group, you know, give or take 10 or so people. You know, there was the same cohort, like the same maybe 30 people, guys and, and girls that I knew, all South County Dublin, all from these Irish medium um, education. And that I, I spent a J1 summer, you know, when you go during university, I spent a J1 summer in San Francisco, one mm. in New York and one in Boston. And I just fell in love with New York. New York was by far my favorite. Of course, you know, <laughs> 10 of us living in a one bedroom apartment between on 82nd, between second and third, I think it was. And all, one of their lads hurler, he was a good hurler. And one of the hurling managers got us the apartment. <laughs> I'm not sure, although I think I didn't, they did know that there was eight or 10 of us living in a one bed, but so <laughs> much fun. Um, and that is when I became aware of the Irish Arts Centre. And my father had done some work with Jim Houlihan, who's a patron of the Irish Arts Centre, with um, on the Hunger Memorial up in Westchester County. And so then Jim was able to put me in touch with the great Pauline Turley, who mm. is a fantastic friend of mine, everyone knows. Um, you know, a fantastic person um, in Irish America. And I was lucky enough to um, get a volunteering um, teaching position. So it was a non-paid, this is back in 2003. So if you imagine it was a very different place, um, New York was then, you know, still recovering from 9-11. Obviously, we're still all recovering, but very, you know, it was two years afterwards and the economy wasn't great. So um, I was very lucky to get this teaching position non-paid voluntary but it meant that they were willing to sponsor my visa right and I suppose it, it was you know their assurance to make sure that I was serious about the position and um I had great experience teaching there with Alexi and um, he taught there for many years and I, just, I of course went for a year and stayed 10 <laughs> my poor mother um and it was honestly I feel like I grew up in New York because it was the most formative 10 years of my life because if you grow up in the same place as I had in South County Dublin um when I moved to New York it was kind of the first time you bought two I always say you I bought toothpaste for myself you know so I really (laughs) almost feel I became an adult it was the first time I lived on my own it was the first time you know when I went for J1 summers before it was three months you know it wasn't the same whereas this was like an indefinite amount of time and everyone from my lawyer, Barbara McCormick, to my boss at the time, Pauline Turley, everyone was just so, so welcoming. It really, you just felt like straight away you were part of something so, so special and you felt so supported at all times. Elaine, the, the, you, you mentioned the Irish Arts Centre and that's like a, such a well-known uh institution for anybody in New York. But why don't you give uh, folks a little bit of a flavour of what went on there when you were there and then you know it's changed dramatically as they've just moved into a beautiful new facility right around the corner but what what, what was the irish arts center for you and and for the community um i remember we'd open up the building for gaelic kids on a saturday morning we we began uh, manhattan or new york I, i think first irish language kindergarten it was just two hours on a saturday morning and 
we sometimes be teaching that downstairs, but then halfway through the class, the, the, the whole roof start, might, might start shaking because <laughs> there'd be a step, Niall O'Leary would be doing his thing no, upstairs. No. And then, you know, you, you could be make, going up to make tea and coffee for some of the parents and we'd bowerons banging in. And, <laughs> you know, there was one, two little restrooms for the whole building and no. it was just jam-packed. It was like a little home, like a community hub um, for everyone. And certainly I always felt so welcome. I saw some of the best plays I've ever seen. I really got into theatre. Mm. Um, through the Irish Arts Centre. Um, I was so lucky enough to be invited uh, to many opening nights and meeting dignitaries, um, uh, you know, ambassadors and um, actors and everyone in between. Um, and then we had our open day, which invited everyone, not just Irish Americans. And I think that's what's great about the Irish Arts Centre. It's the whole all-inclusiveness of it. Um, and, you know, the Irish Arts Centre, it, it's, you get what you give, you know, if you're willing to get involved, it, you really can reap the benefits of it. And I was lucky enough last December, December 2021, to go over for the official opening uh-huh. and the gala, um, which was so emotional. It really was to see it. You know, we heard for so long about this building and the capital campaign and the Irish government and um, the US or the New York um you know, politicians and stuff raising millions upon millions. And finally, to see this centre opening its doors was you know because the scandinavian center or the the french center have these mm. beautiful yeah. headquarters and it was and i'll be honest an embarrassment to kind of you know then we'll have dignitaries coming to visit the irish arts center or will you come in the side door and that loo might be blocked so you have to use the one upstairs <laughs> you know just i'm t- being totally honest it yeah. might be a little mouse we all know what new york is like also um, not park avenue Definitely, it's, not. it's sort of exactly. a neighborhood of. Uh, exactly. I mean, I think it's you know, like a lot of New York's improving rapidly, but yeah. back then it was you know gas stations and yeah. kind of the the industrial back lot of New York. But I'm delighted they didn't move. I think it would, it would yep. have been sold out if they had moved to you know Museum Mile or anything like that because right. it's where Hell's Kitchen is such a, an important part of Irish immigration and its story. So I'm delighted. We'll talk a little more about your thesis, or maybe we'll just kind of weave it in as we go along here. But you you talk about looking at uh, Irish identity through the lens of the organizations that uh, the Irish join. And that's what, that's the trail I was on. You know, I was finding my way into the Irish Business Organization, the Irish Network, the Irish International Business Network, Irish American Writers and Artists, you know, all that. So what, what was, you know, tell us a little bit about the communities that you were able to tap into and what did you learn about them? I, when I moved over, I just could not believe straight away. It's like, what county are you from? And I, I, I you know, I always say it depends who's asking. So <laughs> I have, you know, I, I have a few cards I can deal. So, um, you know, I was born and raised in Dublin, but I, I don't really have a strong connection to Dublin. Maybe that's, maybe it's from coming from a capital city. I don't know. It's, it's mm. where going back, I always say, well, my father's from Mayo, my mom's from Wexford, which are either end, you know, so football and hurling and to, to straight away get involved, um, say, with the Garveys in the Mayo Society or the Mayo Association. And everyone was just so welcoming. I suppose when you move from Ireland to the US or even if you move from a place in the US that mightn't necessarily have a big, a large Irish community, when you move to somewhere like New York, then it's you have this immediate conversation. There's no kind of awkwardness. And whether we're at, at uh, events at the Irish Consulate or we're up at Gaelic Park, it's straight, straight away, well, where are you from? Or, and how, how did you come to be here? 
you know, whether you've moved from Michigan or moved from Mayo. Um, right. It's this just connection that we all have. And what I looked at, so I didn't realize until about maybe three or four years into my time in New York, how there was almost like a hierarchy and people, some, and I'm going to be totally honest, because this yeah. is what I want to write about. You know, I've, I've written my PhD, the academic uh, book, but I want to translate that now into kind of a readable book for everybody, for the Irish community in the US. Um, and, you know, by going to events, people are seen at events, they seem to be more active, but then there are other people who might be a bit shyer or for some reasons maybe they're undocumented and can't attend uh, the events, as many events as they would like to. Um, so I kind of looked at that. And also, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, some Irish-born people might look at a third or fourth generation Irish-American and mock them and kind of say, well, they're not really Irish. They think they're Irish. And that just makes me so annoyed. But then at the <laughs> same time, you might get a fourth generation or third generation Irish-American who looks down, this is very serious, they look down on the undocumented. Mm. And I mean, the undocumented, it's, it's not just when I was researching it, it was really upsetting to research it because it's not just the case that, you know, yes, they can leave and they can come back to Ireland. But often if we look at the stories, why they left Ireland, there's often a tragic reason behind it, whether it's from a broken home. I don't mean where parents divorce. I mean, a dysfunctional home completely where, where there's there is no kind of foundation there. There's no home to, to go to. There might have been substance abuse, either the parents or them. They might have committed a petty crime and you know in Ireland everyone knows everyone whether you're in Belfast or Cork or whatever everyone knows anyone so it's very hard to kind of reinvent yourself so if you're branded with the shoplifter or mm. you got pregnant at 16 or whatever it is it's kind of that stigma is attached to you for the rest of your life and maybe so sometimes it's not just because they want to earn tax-free money over in the US and stuff it's because of another reason um, so it, it was it was tough interviewing the undocumented and I made sure to go through the Irish lobby for immigration reform with help you know to act as a gatekeeper to always keep them safe um, from an ethical point of view because you have to academically I have to do that and to use pseudonyms um, but this was pre-COVID when I did all my interviews and talking to someone who had to Skype home to Sligo to watch their dad's funeral um, is it's just heartbreaking and I almost I didn't say it to that person at the time but I like I almost felt like I don't know if they had accepted the fact that their loved one had passed because they haven't been home to mourn in their house to have a cup of tea without that person there with them mm -hmm. uh, and also for weddings for you know because then airfare is somewhat affordable now and we we all think nothing of popping on a plane let's be honest and I remember um, the lovely Sheila Lyonet and it's in my PhD you know when Mayo poor Mayo God help us <laughs> but Mayo at another All-Ireland and it was a, a draw and then the All-Ireland was replayed and someone like Sheila or, or Dave McCormick my other good friend they can pop home for both you know in the space yeah. of two weeks you yeah. know whereas for an undocumented person there is this kind of resentment um towards maybe people who have visas or people who could just come and go as they please through, you know, the, the um, US immigration control on their EI-109 or whatever the flights are. I think a lot of Americans would be surprised at the notion of undocumented Irish. Can I ask your understanding of the scale of the problem as you encountered it in New York? Can you, you know, shine a light on this a little more? It's very difficult to get a figure. Um, I would have, you know, worked with, say, Kieran Staunton and the figure they would always come with is about 50,000 um, in the US. 
um, because the undocumented are so scared of putting any details down in the census form, even though we are told in the US that it's anonymous, you know, it won't be handed over to the INS or what's it called now? Um, Homeland Security or whatever. Homeland Security, Mm -hmm. there you Mm go. Um, You see, you can tell I've been out in New York too long now. (laughs) I need to go back. Um, But they're, they're so nervous. And I remember interviewing some of the undocumented or even just chatting to, say, bartenders in bars. And they would tell me that if they come across a scene of an accident, right, and, and they see exactly what happened. They are too nervous to even give a statement to the officer at NYPD mm. because in case they're questioned and brought mm. to court and then be like, well, wait a second, can we see some ID and where's your papers? So they're just living in this, like, in the shadows almost. And like, they can't even, you know, in the good parts, can't get involved thoroughly in the Irish American community because they don't want to be in an event and someone say, oh, well, how long have you been in New York? And oh, did you go home for Christmas last year? And things like that. Um, so it's it's... It's really heartbreaking for them. And I know families who the grandparents from Ireland will come over when the kids get the school holidays in New York and bring the little ones who are all American citizens, by the way, because they were all born there and bring them back to Ireland for the whole summer to get, have an Irish um, childhood for the summer. It, it's it's heartbreaking. But then I do understand um, Americans who feel very strongly about it. You know, I, I worked really hard to get my visa and to pay my taxes and to, to do all that. So, and maybe some undocumented people will probably earn more money than I'll ever earn in my life. Um, so there is that as well. You know, you kind of have to be an adult about it, but it's not as simple as they're breaking the law by staying here. They may not feel they have the option to come home. And, and that's not just if there's a job there for them. Mentally, home reminds them of whatever happened, whatever trauma happen and I did that did come up quite a bit and it took a bit of digging for me when I was interviewing and kind of to win their trust over there was always a reason you know obviously there's the lads or uh, girls who go over for the crack and stay um, but there are pathways to um, citizenship as well you know if you're willing to kind of say right here we go you know uh, there are definite pathways and I do know people as well who become US citizens and I'm not talking about marrying someone I'm not talking about that I'm talking about being legitimate and and working your way up and and getting sponsorship through a company and then it often involves coming back home to Ireland for maybe two years but if they're serious about it then they will and then get sponsorship and move back over but it's kind of unfortunately like at election time in the US it kind of goes away somewhat because these people don't have a vote. Um, so they're not really important to politicians in that way. Sometimes politicians might say, might try appeal to certain people who detest the undocumented. Um, so they might say, right, we'll get rid of all of them. And we all know what would happen if all the undocumented people in the US left. You know, there would be no US. You know, they are a part of the society, whether we like it or not. Touching on another aspect of how you've looked at the Irish identity, and, and you know, I'm looking at your thesis here, which you, maybe I'm getting into a little sooner than we planned, but you talk about the boundary markers that characterize different Irish identities. And you know, these are all the kind of, this is sort of the subtext of Irish stew a lot of times. We don't go at it quite as directly, or we never use that term. But w- what do you mean by boundary markers, and how did you see that play out? A certain cohort of people might have like their Irish outfits that they wear to an event you know the people who the more detached someone is maybe from Ireland in that you know say if it was a great great grandfather or maybe they it, it's such a tenuous link that they can't actually have a link but they feel there's a link that they often feel the need to wear like I'm looking at you guys now 
you've a gray shirt on and you've like a maroon shirt on, you know, but I maybe feel if you didn't have a real connection, and this is actually a very interesting point, if you didn't have a specific link to Ireland, you might have come on with some kind of an Irish sweater. I'm not making right. fun of anyone who wears Irish sweater. It's not that at all. But it's that feel you, you want to maybe justify um, to yourself. It's like, and you want to express, you have to express your ethnicity in another way because you guys have Irish accents, you know, straight away, no one's going to challenge it. So therefore you mightn't call your child or, or, or your dog with an Irish name, but someone who mightn't have a, a direct lineage to Ireland might I don't know, call their dog Guinness or, or, or definitely feel the need to, to call their kids Irish names. But then there also might be a little Irish tartan or, you know, the bows in the child's hair. It could be a clad door knocker. I've gone to houses where, you know, the placemats when I'm having dinner, this is when I was interviewing people um, and, and they didn't realise that I was taking notes and I told them I'm going to take notes of everything. You know, the doors of Dublin, you know, the beautiful Georgian doors. So the placemats might be the doors of Dublin placemats. Whereas in Ireland, you mightn't see that in a house. So it's like, come over here and they'll buy stuff. And it's all that to express their identity. And it is so fascinating for me to see the different, it's the more disconnected they might feel to Ireland in, in because they might be able to claim an Irish passport, for example, the more effort that they make having an Irish water bottle, for example, you know, with some Irish Celtic design. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing is we we often talk to people who come over uh, from Ireland and the last thing they want to do is be with Irish people. You know, they want to break out on their own. They they don't want to be in the Irish community anymore. And and a lot of them find their way back. (laughs) It's just I knew what you were going to say. That's fine for, you know, a, a year or so. But just I think after a while, whether it's through work or through romance or through just socializing, They'll just find their way back. It's they mightn't be fully immersed, but they might dip in and out of it, which is completely natural. But I also think it's a kind of an age thing, and I think you don't really look at your identity maybe until you get to an age where you're having kids, or else. What I almost saw with it's like a hierarchy of needs. Like once you know, when you're twenties and thirties, you're working, 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 and then when you get kind of comfortable, you start going, well, what are my interests? You know, I'd like to take up golf and I'd like to research that bit of my family history. And then we find the really fascinating thing where someone might be one eighth Polish, one eighth French, mm-hmm. one eighth Irish, and then one, you know, lots of other one eighths. But for this, for some reason, and that's what I looked at in my PhD, why people chose and still continue to choose, why they choose Irishness. I feel it's because we're an easy ethnicity to be affiliated with. I don't mean easy in the, in the sense of we're all welcoming and everyone's welcome. Of course, we are, that is true as well. But we've never colonized anyone. So Ireland has never colonized another country. Um, we're neutral and we're very welcoming. We're the most beautiful country in the world, of course. And we're known worldwide. I mean, you know, Kerrygold butter is sold in Japan. <laughs> Why is that? Because it rains so much. We're the happiest cows in the world. Absolutely. Uh, you, you could be a spokesperson for Board Bia. Well, well, maybe it's time. I hate to do it, but the um, Department of Homeland Security has, has told us we have to send you back to Ireland now. So let's so let's let's bring you back to Ireland. Why did you go there? And I know there was some very interesting and, and challenging chapters as you returned to Ireland, but some great chapters as well. So I think after about eight years in New York, I was, how old was I then? I was, I was coming up to 30. 
and I, I kind of missed my mum. <laughs> you know, I went for a year and I was living in Manhattan. Uh, myself and Pauline Turley were living together for five great years. Oh. I was writing for the Irish Echo newspaper. I was teaching for the City University of New York. I was teaching for the Irish Arts Centre. I was teaching for Cultus Kilthery Aaron. I was teaching out in a pub in Queens. I was teaching for the Irish Centre in Long Island City. And New York, I'm being honest, is like a merry-go-round. You know, you kind of need to, I mean, as in Irish New York, Irish America, that full on, you're out seven days a week, seven nights a week, morning, noon and night sometimes. And you need to know when to step off that merry-go-round. And I was researching and researching and saying, I'll just go to a few more events and then I'll start writing my thesis and then I'll start writing my thesis. And it never happened, which is why the PhD took me so long to write. And I really feel I needed that disconnection from Irish America to look at, to, to view Irish America. I, ne- I needed to look, stand back and look at it from afar. And it took me about two years to find the right Irish teacher to take over my jobs and things like that. And I think because the world is so accessible now, I was back and forth and back and forth. And then we, we decided, my, my husband, Dean, and myself decided to settle in Ballymoney and then we wanted children and then the children came along um, and he still encouraged me to go back to New York um, very often. But I think... I just, I always felt it's either a case I was going to move kind of upstate or out to the suburbs of New York or move home to my mum and dad, you know, and I don't mean we live 20 minutes away and I I don't see them every single day, but I see them an awful lot. And I wanted to move home while they were still young enough. You know, I didn't want to move home to look after them and they might know why, you know what I mean? If I left in maybe 20 years more or, or whatever and, um, I think, you know, a lot of my friends in New York would have spoken about, and it's in my piece as well, getting that phone call. And when you're in New York, sometimes if your phone rings at a strange hour, we all go, oh, something's wrong. With an Irish number on it, something is wrong. And I just felt it was the right time to move home. But when I went back um, in December 2021, straight away, I just felt so at home. And I really feel that my time in New York isn't done. I absolutely feel at home there. I feel so welcome there. There's something about it. It's so hard to describe to someone who hasn't had the experience of living within the Irish American community and feeling so at home in a place. And it's not just the events. I mean, uh, like it's not the drink or anything like that. It's just, I don't know, it's that community parochial um, and, and look, there's the same little quabbles between this organization and this as you'd get with any community. That's what makes it so exciting. But I just felt it was, you know, raising kids as well. It, it wasn't going to be a runner for us in Manhattan anyway. Um, so I just yeah, really felt it was the right time to move home. And honestly, if I'd stayed there, I'm not sure if the PhD would ever have got finished <laughs> because of the events every night of the week from, you know, oh, I don't even want to mention, I don't want to, I'll be, I'll be here all day. Well, you, you, you kind of mentioned like very lightly, once over lightly, you had kids and you had kids. But but we know uh, we've done our research. We know you've had you had quite uh, uh, some amazing challenges with your pregnancies. And uh, t- tell us about that, because I, I know it's 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 a traumatic, uh, I'm sure traumatic memories, but, uh, you know, triumphs as well. And I know it's a cause near and dear to you. So why don't you take us a however you see best, take us through some of the the, the trials and triumphs of your motherhood. Yes. Um, I'll start off saying, first, I'm never, ever sick. I 
go to the doctor maybe once every four years. I'm really, really lucky. And my three pregnancies, unfortunately, I just had complications, unrelated complications. So I did three different bed rests. And I'm talking, I've had one baby in Wexford Hospital, one baby in Waterford Hospital, and one baby in Dublin. Because as each pregnancy you know, each subsequent pregnancy, it got more serious. Um, I had a thing called coleostasis on the first one, which isn't that serious. You're just very, very itchy. Um, and your kind of liver isn't working as it should. And that baby was born quite early, um, 36 weeks or so four weeks early. But for your first child, you think you're the only person ever to have had a baby in the world. And you want that baby to be perfect and everything to be perfect. And being in hospital a month before the baby's born isn't ideal. You know, um, it, it, it was quite traumatic, but I really didn't realize what trauma was until my second pregnancy. Um, I was very lucky uh, to get pregnant very naturally and, you know, quickly, very, because often a lot hmm. of people do struggle with that. Um, but at 25 weeks, unfortunately, um, I became ill and started hemorrhaging and they said I'd lost the baby and I was transferred to Waterford Hospital. At that stage, sorry, they didn't realize how, how severe it was. I was transferred to Wexford uh, and then to Waterford and they said, look, we think you're losing the baby, you're losing the baby. And then all of a sudden they said, oh, no, wait a second, here's his heartbeat. And they were able to stabilize me and I was on strict bed rest for five weeks. Now, when I when I mean strict bed rest, you're allowed to have three showers a week. You kind of have to eat your hospital dinners almost lying down in bed. You have gravy constantly on your pajamas. Um, and that little baby was born at 30 weeks, which is good for a preterm baby who is three mm. and a half pounds, like 1.5 kg. And unfortunately, though, his lungs were really, really weak and he was ventilated for six weeks and the ventilator burst his lungs um, two holes on one side and one on the other. And I say this now, six years later, thankfully he is a healthy six-year-old now, but six years ago, we were told that we're sorry for your loss They because everything was pointing towards a death. We were meant to lose this baby and they asked us, you know, in preparation, um, we were going to get him christened uh, in the hospital and we don't know why he survived. It was an absolute miracle. Like, it, it's almost like my life is defined now before Oren and after Oren because something like that, to, for your marriage to go to, through that and survive it because men and women deal with stuff in such different ways and I have turned this now into helping women and their partners and their surrounded friends and family um, and then I did go on to have another little guy, Dino, and I got another pregnancy complication called placenta accreta. Placenta accreta is where your placenta just grows far too deep into the um, it can grow around your organs and it almost acts like a tumour. Um, so an oncology team were looking after me, even though it was benign and non-cancerous. And um, the HSE in Ireland, the health um, serve, what about HSE? <laughs> health Service uh, of Ireland, um, they saved my life, basically. So the HSE saved my life uh, back in February 2019 because I had a total blood loss during the surgery to deliver my last baby. And interestingly, we knew it was another boy and my husband is South African and he wanted to call the baby Cameron and I wanted to call the baby Lachlan. But when the day the baby was born, because I was so sick and I had to get a total blood replacement into a center line in my neck. So the day after the surgery, not one drop of blood in my body was my own. It was all from donor blood. And we called the baby Dean Ogue, which means Dean Jr., after my husband. 
And my husband is South African and he's like, what, why would you call him after me? I said, that's what we do in Ireland. We call the baby, you know, after the daddy. And because it was such a traumatic mm. experience, particularly for my husband, because I was under a general anesthetic, I didn't know what was going on. I just woke up and all my family had been called to the hospital to my bedside because they feared the worst. And I was on morphine post-surgery going, what are you all doing here? Can I have a cup of tea? Like they all laughed. So now like he's, so I have Tristan who is eight. I have Oren who is six and I have little Dino who is three and I feel so lucky like I just it's part of me now it, it's I the, the lows I've experienced in life are mm. so bad nearly like like I almost know what it feels like to lose a child because we had that conversation where we're going to bury him in the angel garden at Waterford Hospital or are we going to bury him in Bory Cemetery with my grandmother and to have that to organise your own child's funeral or to begin preparing and then when it doesn't happen you still have to deal with the trauma of it could have and it took you know years for it to kind of come out and again the HSE in Ireland are fantastic they put me in touch with their mental health team and all checking in to make sure I'm okay and I was a completely public patient so I wasn't a private patient because I was a PhD student at the time so it was completely public and often the HSE you know people yell about them and give out about them all the time but I am a success story I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the blood donors in Ireland who give their blood every year um, but now I have turned it into a really positive thing that I am now trying to help families when they suffer a loss. So when a baby unfortunately dies, I, I'm i part of the Irish Neonatal Health Alliance and it's a voluntary organisation, but by God, I take it very professionally. I take it so seriously. It is a very important role from, from my point of view. Um, so we send out angel gowns. Um, often you'd know that the, the baby isn't going to make it, so I'll send out an angel gown. Um, and then we make sure that the baby has a cuddle cot, which is a cot, um, that will keep the baby when it has died um, so that keep them cool so the family can spend time with the baby because we've learned that spending time when an infant has died with the child for a couple of days even really helps process the loss and helps with the, I don't want they say the healing because you, I don't think you're ever healed, but helps deal with it and accept it rather than back in the day in Ireland if it was the 60s 70s the baby would be taken away and you'd never see it and weren't really meant to talk about it ever again and even with prematurity I help um, mothers and partners just come to terms with the prematurity you know you feel you've all this resentment when you have a premature baby it's so common um, and I really feel Ireland are kind of punching above their weight we're, we're doing really well in terms of providing support to families um, affected by premature birth and because I've come so close to losing a little guy um sorry I'm just laughing I nearly laughed to myself this morning we had a big argument because he wouldn't put on his raincoat <laughs> so I still treat him I don't treat him any differently now it was lashing rain here in Ireland this morning and he didn't want to wear the raincoat because mm. he didn't think it was cool mm. yeah so <laughs> no it's it's a, a close very a cause very close to my heart and um, I just love, it's very therapeutic for me to give back, whether it's raising money to buy hospital grade breast pumps to encourage mums to continue to breastfeed their premature baby um, because prem babies will not survive um, without breast milk, whether it's donor or from the mum. So it's, it's part of me. And if I didn't speak about it, I wouldn't be uh, being honest to, to myself because it is such a huge part of my life. Can I ask, clearly you had three difficult pregnancies and had to deal with the trauma associated with the birth of your second child, Oran. Um, some people would like to 
forget about that and move on. You, on the other hand, decided to engage in a deeper level, you know, helping people that have had the tragedy of losing a baby. So can you give us a little bit deeper an understanding of why you made that choice? When I got Oren home from the hospital, so he was due at Halloween and we went to the hospital the 10th of July and he was born the 10th of August. And when I got him home on his due date, it was so scary. It wasn't like big celebrations when we got him home. Um, you're told when you're leaving the hospital after you do your CPR um, course in the hospital, you, you, know, you have to do CPR with little fingers, not with your fists. And they said a, a broken rib is better than a deceased baby. So, you know, and, and they told us, you know, prem babies until they're one are five times more likely to die a cop death. So it's not like you just go home and say, woohoo, he's fine now. You know, we had apnea monitors. He is, he was quarantined at home for nine months. So even though we got him home um, in October, he wasn't let out till after St. Patrick's Day. And I feel because of COVID now, yes, we understand quarantine, but back then maybe people thought I was being a bit high maintenance, a bit precious, but I wasn't. It was just, it was just the way. And I, I remember approaching Mandy Daly, the head of the Irish Neonatal Health Alliance, um, it was when Oren came home and I was I wanted to save every single child in the whole wide world, blah, 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 and I was a bit too eager maybe. And she said, look, that's fantastic. Um, I'll meet with you, but it would be another year or two until we'd allow you to give back. And people often, you know, if they've if come through cancer, they want to give back straight away because they've all this almost like survivor's guilt, or I don't know what, what the word is, but you want to just help. Every, you don't want anyone to have to go through what you've just gone through. And I really feel it was Mandy asking me to wait, wait a second, just calm down, take a step back. And then in a year or two, if you still feel as enthusiastic about it, and of course, thankfully I was, and it's just, yeah, I don't get paid for it. And I also um, uh, work with Placenta Accreta Ireland. We do a lot of research into Placenta Accreta. Um, but it's a really important part of my life and my journey. And I don't want to sound like Oprah Winfrey saying that, but it's it's almost just a natural progression. It's a natural inter- way for me to heal because I know I can protect people. Not everyone needs to know the ins and outs of, premature birth or premature death uh, when a prem baby dies so I but I can help make it even it's the littlest tiniest gestures that can have such a huge impact you know I know um, it's very upsetting to talk about and maybe the listeners will find it very upsetting but I know a girl who had to bury her little daughter in doll's clothes because there was no little gown to bury um, the child in so now people donate our wedding the wedding dresses to us and we have seamstresses and they make beautiful little gowns into sorry yeah little games with lace and celtic designs and we give them to mums who have lost a baby so they can bury their child in a dignified way it's a difficult subject for me to even contemplate and i think uh i would say on behalf of my listeners we're glad there are kind folks out there like you that are willing to do this kind of challenging work and and i'd also add that 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 in my view that i think what makes life meaningful is connecting with others around us whether that's during their difficulties or whether that's in their best of days it is in my view what makes life worth living because 
community is, you know, we're designed to do that. We're designed to connect. And people, in my experience, that lead the happiest of lives are those that, you know, extend themselves to others and help others. Um, so thank you for that. But I'm going to switch back now to uh, the Irish language side of your life, because now you're back in Ireland. Um, but you have chosen to continue to engage with the American community by teaching students from Notre Dame, as they say here, or they would say in Ireland, Notre Dame, but in America, it's Notre Dame University, which is in Indiana. Uh, you've chosen to educate them in Irish. And, and let me ask, ask the question, why would American students feel the need to learn Irish? So I was lucky enough to uh, get a job teaching Irish for Notre Dame University here on uh, Marion Square in Dublin, near Hollis Street. Um, and Kevin Whelan runs the program there. And I, I miss New York and I missed the US so much when I moved home. So this job was just perfect for me because I have the best of both worlds. I can be in Ireland, but have exposure to Americans and feel part of the Irish American community still. Um, so our students come um, usually it's for a semester, it's a study abroad semester. We, we do have some year-round students as well, but most come for the semester. So we've just said goodbye to our spring um, kids. They left maybe two weeks ago. And when they're here, they will study at UCD, Trinity or DCU. And they'll continue studying whatever um, major and minor they're doing back on campus in South Bend in Indiana. Uh, but then also we will teach them Irish history, Irish culture, Irish language, and bring them on all um, types of trips to Kylemore, up to Jide's Causeway. Uh, uh, Kevin will always bring them to a hurling match, of course. Um, they, has to, they have to shout for Wexford. Um, <laughs> and I just, Kevin wants them to have a full experience of what Ireland is. And I always say it's, uh, you know, I have no interest going to go into an Irish secondary school and persuade teenagers to learn Irish. Uh, I don't get into that debate because I always say I'm not an Irish language preacher. If someone detests the Irish language for various reasons, and there are numerous, you know, people were forced to learn it. Um, and I can understand why people might not like the language because if your parents were forced to learn it and they instill a kind of, a, I don't want to say hate is too strong a word, a dislike uh, of the language because if your parents were, you know, you're a teenager say and your parents were forced to learn it and they're like, oh, what use is that? Blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to waste my time trying to convince that person to learn Irish. Whereas when I have a group of American students, they're so open to different ethnicities. They've now, you know, left um, the US. For many of them, it's their first time in Europe. They are traveling almost every weekend, maybe popping over Ryanair, cheap Ryanair flights to Stockholm. They might go to Oslo. They might go to London another week. And they're hearing all languages, meeting different cultures. And they're so open to learning a language. And that's why I love teaching being in the US to American students or being in Ireland to US students because they're just so open. They don't understand the baggage that goes with the language, which it, it can be like a block, a complete block, um, a mental block that many Irish people have towards the language. And that's why I never really got into teaching Irish in an Irish university or in, say, an Irish high school um, because you're just you're up against so many negative people and negative comments unfortunately yeah it was interesting um last season we hosted uh, Makdara from Inishir 
And subsequent to that episode, I posted, let's call it a slightly inflammatory uh, post on Facebook asking our audience whether anything should be done to revive the Irish language. And I was fascinated by the firestorm that set off. I was accused of many different things. Um, but it, the discussion was fascinating because it was all over the shop. For example, some people suggested that the existence of Irish language schools, Gwaelskolna, were elitist. And when I grew up in Ireland, I left Ireland in 1983. To be a monoglot, a single language speaker of Irish, was to be backward, to be impoverished. And I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts about that arc, this odd arc of from impoverished, let's call it redneck, or in Ireland, culty Irish, Irish speaker, to elitist Dublin Irish speaker urbanite. It's a really stunning change over the years. I, even in my lifetime, I'm 42, and you know, I started elementary school back in what 85, and the parents associated with the schools were poets, they were artists, they were writers, and very quickly, um, you know, the, 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 sorry, the kids attending who were in my class, we had Suraho, we had Mida, Gronya, Anya, and then very quickly, there was an explosion of Irish medium schools, and you'd have like cherry blossom you know with sitting beside whoever you know non-irish names and i'm not saying you have to have an irish name i'm not saying that i'm just kind of characterizing or making a caricature of this story um i think what it boils down to is results and leaving some results and the school i went to closhy sagon would receive one of the best leaving sort of results in the entire country. A clush own is it's there's clush own clush isagon in Stellorgan. And because of that, Irish medium schools gained popularity, even though they're free, uh, you know, they're it's not a private school, it gained popularity because it was like, okay, if I can get my child in there, chances are they're gonna get a good leaving cert. And then the demand became much, much more and the competition became fierce. Even now, I always get letters, can you, you know, emails. Can you, any chance you can help me get in, my kid into the school? They're oversubscribed. You know, you can't. There's waiting lists. Um, although I think they're doing away with that now in Ireland. You can only apply the year before. Um, it's changing all the time. Um, so I think it's it's all down to leaving sort of results and kind of status symbol. You know, people want to say, my child goes to such such a school. And do you know, I've even found it on my own CV. It's an opener. It, it's I didn't realise, even outside of Ireland, how how much weight it carries. Uh, I suppose in the US it would be the same as having, say, Notre Dame uh, or an Ivy League school um, on your resume. It, it's it's status symbol almost. Um, I mean, that I, I don't mean that in, in a negative way. It's, yeah, it's, it's a badge of honour. Yeah, it's kind of a, a facet of somebody's identity, I would say, going to an all-Irish school. Now, interestingly, my father went to Colosh to Wirra in Dublin which was one of the original Gwaelskolna. Uh, and my older brother, who lives in North County, Dublin, is also a Gwaelgor. Uh, he chose to do that, actually, by the time, when he was a young adult, he, just, he decided to make an effort to speak Irish. So he spoke to his children, 
in Irish while their mother spoke English. And so they were raised in a bilingual household. And his children also, the two oldest, went to Kloshtawira in Dublin. So we have a grandparent and grandchildren all going through the same school. Um, so it's been fascinating to watch their development and the ability that they show in learning many other languages. So within my that small family of four children, we have uh, not only Irish fluency, but we also have Italian, we also have German, we also have French. And so there's something to be said for this experience and raising one's children in a bilingual environment. And I'm guessing that's probably what you do is with your children. You said your husband is South African. Uh, so how's his Gwelga? Or Irish. His, his Gaelic is actually yes, yeah, good. He he can he can you know I, I, if I'm nagging him and I'll be like oh can you do that he'll be like Kerkalor you know okay he knows yeah a few <laughs> words but honestly any day we could have if he's on the phone to his um, twin brother he could be speaking Afrikaans when he doesn't want me to understand it then my all our kids were also given Zulu names um, by his kind of like she's been with them for years, this lady who lives with them, uh, Zanelli, and she, they all have Zulu names, so particularly our middle guy, um, Amandla, is like Health Amandla, is the Zulu. Um, we have Sipo as well, which is um, Tristan. They all have Zulu names, and then a lot of Gaelga, but interesting enough, I didn't send my kids to an Irish medium school, only because, so where we live in Ballymoney, there's, it's like Postman Pat. Do you remember the cartoon Postman Pat? And they go to, they attend a school um, right on top of a tiny little hill. And they get to go to this little country road. And that school, it's, so it's very close. It's like a five minute drive, even less, from our house. And the school is right across the road from the GEA club. which And then the church is right there as well. So it's a proper little Irish um, childhood. For me to get to the Gael school would be quite a mission because it, it's just logistically not easy and um, particularly when I'm on my own three of them and at the, at the moment I have three different pickups and stuff um, mm-hmm. but we do speak a lot of Irish um, at home and I'd yell at them as well sometimes and, and it's interesting Pauline Turley used to laugh at me so much if I'm if I see something about to happen, like an accident about to happen, I always say, be Cormac, which means be careful. And I remember roller skating with her years ago in, in um, Central Park. And it was, is it after 10 when they open up the traffic? And I screamed at her. Now, Pauline didn't speak any Irish because she grew up in Newry. And I was like, be Cormac. And she said in her Newry accent, if I am going to get knocked down, can you say it in English rather than Irish? <laughs> <laughs> or even if I burn myself, I'll scream as Gaelga. So it's almost, it's my innate language. Now, the good news is actually, if you do go back rollerblading in Central Park, there is no longer any traffic on the ring oh, road around Central Park. Great. There you go. I think my rollerblades days are over. <laughs> you yeah. just dated yourself and your experience <laughs> in New York. But um, we're getting to that point in the podcast where we've really enjoyed this conversation, but it is time for our friend, the Seamus Plug. So this is an opportunity for you to tell us about something that you're involved in or something that you're interested in promoting. So uh, go ahead. I suppose um, what I'm working on is translating, my, you know, converting my PhD thesis. The thesis is entitled The Negotiation of an Irish Identity in New York City. And I'm going to make that into a readable book because a PhD thesis is very weighty. It's a lot of theory. Um People might sit down. It's not really a coffee table book that you're going to flick through. Um, so I am in the process of re- rewriting a, a large uh, portion of that, and it will 
hopefully be published someday soon. I don't want to put a date on it, but definitely I'll be over in New York um, someday launching the book. And I just, I hope to get over it for the Irish Arts Centre Gala um, this year also. Mm. Um, I wasn't able to make it over for St. Patrick's Day this year, but I'm hoping to next year because it'll always be a part of me. And what I love about Irish America, it's, you you're, you always feel connected to it. You know, you don't have to be at every single event. At every, you know, I watch the Irish Business Organization events online. And I, you know, I'm always in bed, staying up late, trying to keep up with what's going on. But I just feel so thankful to have exposure still into the Irish American community and hope, yeah, you all buy the book when I do publish it someday soon. And thanks so much for having me, Kermila Moffat. Tofoil Tarot, and thank you so much for coming on. John and I, I think I can speak for John, he'll chime in, really enjoyed this conversation, kind of touched us, and I know our listeners will enjoy uh, your thoughts on the Irish-American community, about the language, and your wonderful work in supporting families that are struggling with loss of a premature child or struggling to come to terms with the difficulties associated with taking care of a premature child. So thank you so much, Elaine. Thanks, Elaine. Great great to see you again. See you back in New York. Hey, Martin, great to share Elaine's story with our Global Irish Nation audience. We appreciate everybody who listens in. And, uh, you know, how can the listeners help us out a bit? Well, we have listeners that we encounter in all sorts of places and email, etc. But one of the most important places we encounter our listeners is through the apps that they listen to the podcast on. So every app has got one thing, or maybe two, a follow or a subscribe button. So make sure you're following or subscribe to Irish Stew. Amen. And now, John, back to the episode. What's your thoughts? Well, Martin, it was great to reconnect with Elaine. I knew her in New York, and her doctoral dissertation covers pretty much the years of like when I entered what I call the Irish Trail. So I'll be really fascinated when she converts that thesis into a more popular book. Uh, be fascinating to see what she found and what she discovered, because in a way, I was on a discovery at that time in my life, too. Yeah. And you know what struck me? Over the course of our conversation, it was kind of divergent. We covered three totally different areas, the Irish language, the Irish-American experience, and neonatal issues, especially families that are maybe undergoing really difficult times. And in each one, you can see what a positive influence Elaine Nivranon is having on the various domains within which she operates. We need more people like Elaine. Uh, definitely. I, I agree. And uh, I am left with one nagging question, though, Martin, coming out of this great conversation. We What's had. that? What happened to Theo the parrot? Well, maybe our listeners can update us on that. So Theo the parrot, loose in Wexford, around Ballymoney or Gory. Hopefully an African gray parrot has been found and is back roosting at home happily. Please let us know. It keeps me up at night. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty. 
with Donald Bowens on drums, Kahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com. Mm-hmm.